Um, last year sometime, I think it was towards the end of last year, I was thinking about the year ahead as a pastor and I resolved that I wanted to be in 2023 a smiling pastor. On the one hand, that can seem a pretty superficial goal, can't it? Um, From my own point of view, perhaps from your point of view, haven't you got more important things to do than smile, David? Perhaps, won't there be times when smiling isn't appropriate? Yes. And yet there's something compelling, isn't there, when you think of your own life, a smiling wife, a smiling husband, a smiling friend, sister, brother, mum, dad, student, a smiling employee. Not that we're always smiling, of course, but a genuine smile can indicate security, happiness, warmth, presence, fearlessness, a sense that all is ultimately very much okay. Well, today's magnificent Bible passage is about much more than generating smiles, but it isn't about less than that. This part of God's word can fundamentally change the way you see yourself, your prospects, your world. Actually, it changes everything. And the news worthy of a smile, in four words, God is for you. God is for you. And God for us comes through the three points Paul makes in this text. If you have your Bibles open, that would be helpful to follow along. Firstly, we know God works for our good. Secondly, we say no opposition to us will stand. Thirdly, we're convinced nothing can separate us from God's love. God is for us. First, then, we know God works all things for our good. Verse 28 reads, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. More than God is for us, This verse indicates that God always has been and always will be for us. If we can turn our four words into five, it would be God is for us forever. And so whatever is going on for you, rain, hail, shine, tsunami, shipwreck, disease, you can know God is at work for his good purposes. Even when the floor is falling from beneath your feet, You must know God's plans for you and the world aren't under threat. Saying, well, she'll be right, mate, as we tend to do in Australia, is just wishful thinking. But knowing God works for good in all situations, including our suffering, to pick up the theme of last week's text, is something else. And it's the reality in which you, Christian, always live, whether you're conscious of it or not. And look at the second part of the verse. Central to his good purpose is that we now love God. That's what Christians learn to do. The Spirit fills our hearts, as we saw in Romans chapter 5, and we find ourselves loving God. Uh, This verse also takes us into the backstory of the church. You might have thought you decided to be a Christian, but God had already decided that, not just the week before or the day of your coming to Christ, but before the creation of the world. Look at verse 29 there. For those God foreknew, he knew in advance, he also predestined, determined, ordained in advance. To what end? To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. With Jesus as our model and the spirit as our inner teacher, our trials make us more like Jesus 
in the good days and the hard days. When Michelangelo was asked, how did you ever turn that big block of marble into this masterpiece, David? Legend has it, Michelangelo answered, well, I just chipped away all the parts that weren't David. Through easy and hard things, God is making us like Jesus, pruning, chipping away. And God's eternal plan was that the son would have human brothers and sisters formed into his likeness. That's not just a religious fun fact. That is why God created the world. That's why humanity exists. That's why you are a Christian. That's why you desire to be like Jesus. Something far bigger than you is going on. From eternity past, God has not only thought, my son, but he has thought, my children. And he's thought about his children very specifically with your names. Just as you didn't choose your first birth, you didn't choose your second. You came to Christ because God decided you would be an eternal brother or sister of the Lord Jesus in the world to come. As Jesus says in John chapter 6, I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The Father draws people to the Son. God's foreknowledge, and this topic of predestination is mind-boggling. But it's not meant to confuse and hinder so much as to assure and delight. God's eternal choice of you may take 70, 100 years to sink in, to fathom, But can you not smile when you think about it? That before the creation of the world, God had you in mind to be in his eternal kingdom. Last week at our dinner table, we were talking about what each person in our family is known for saying. That was an interesting exercise. What sentence are you known for? And we went around and it was a bit of a laugh. I was a bit shocked, but I couldn't disagree when Sam put on his dad voice and said, my line is, Sammy, what's our ice cream situation? I confess I do ask Sam regularly this question about our ice cream supply but he should confess that he always knows the answer (laughs) according to Sam it's not so much if I ask that question but when is dad going to ask that question again Thursday night, Friday night, will it be Saturday night It's a trivial comparison, isn't it? But what isn't a trivial comparison compared to what we're talking about? That your salvation was not an if, but a when. You were always going to put your faith faith in the Saviour. It was your glorious destiny. Why is predestination then so assuring? It's so assuring because we know our salvation relies not on your decision, not on your performance, not on your ability to persevere as a Christian. It finds its basis and its strength in the eternal decision of God and his unchanging purposes in his world and for you. See there in verse 30. And those God predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. See who is the active agent? He is. And look at the way it concludes there. He also glorified. And you might say, but David... Hold on. Shouldn't we say here those he justified, he will future glorify? That's ahead, as we saw in the beginning of chapter 8. That's ahead for us. We're longing for that glory. Why is it in the past tense here that he glorified as though it's happened already? 
Well, John Blanchard says of this phrase that Paul murders grammar to magnify grace. Paul murders grammar to magnify grace. And certainly God's grace, that he will complete this task, is emphasised in this, the way he puts it. But I wonder, is grammar really being murdered here? Is the past tense actually untrue? In, in the sense that Blanchard may, may have been speaking about, is the future really twisted into past language just to comfort us, or is there something substantially true about it? To understand how Paul could use the past tense glorified, we need to see ourselves from God's point of view. I don't think there is any twisting going on. God is not time-bound as we appear to be. God sees our tomorrow as presently as he sees our today. God sees us in the new creation before he even said, let there be light of the first creation. God is not just omnipresent, present everywhere all at once. He is also unbound, infinite in time, present at all times all at once. And so when God says we're glorified already, he's describing what he sees. We await the fulfillment, but God does not wait as those bound by time wait. To put it simply, our future glory is absolutely certain. There is no risk, no contingency, no doubt, no ifs or what ifs. If you're on the glory train, you're on the glory train. The predestined are, each and every one of them, all called, all justified and all glorified. God wants you to see yourself as one glorified. Now you're just waiting to see it with your own eyes. Why does he want us to know? It's because it changes how we live. We shouldn't get to the end of our lives and say, if only I knew for sure that heaven was real and I'd be in it, I would have lived differently. I was never sure and so I lived as though I only half believed it. No, be assured, friends, if you love God as Father, if you trust in Jesus the Son, then an inexpressible and glorious joy for you is certain because those he justified, he also glorified. First, we know God works all things for our good. Second, we say no opposition to us will stand. In verses 31 to 34, in this section, Paul delights in the complete absence of any worthy opponent for a Christian. The delight is expressed in rhetorical questions, and they're like a symphony that just build and build into a crescendo. I'm going to interrupt it a bit by explaining things, but take it home and enjoy it and read it out loud. It's best read. Verse 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? And our big four words, if God is for us, who can be against us? God is on your side. It doesn't matter who stands against you. Now, through the Bible, we get glimpses of where spiritual or physical forces take God on and what they look like as a result, and it never goes well for them. Think of Pharaoh versus God and Israel. God and Israel win. Think of Goliath versus God and little David. God and little David win. In the Gospels, it doesn't matter what comes against Jesus, and so we grow in confidence that God and God the Son can do whatever he pleases. And so he confronts effortlessly disease, evil schemes, blindness, leprosy, storms, demons, 
Even death itself encounters Jesus and loses. Is there a threat, a worthy opponent for God and God's people? God assures us, no, there is not. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nero, the might of Rome? Is that really all they've got? Prisons, chains, soldiers, poverty, starvation? Need we fear the media, our society, artificial intelligence, an election result, a world war? Need we be ashamed of the gospel and afraid of what might come if we proclaim it? Need we be embarrassed about the offensiveness of our own views about heaven or hell or celibacy, church attendance, or where true life is found? If God is for us, who can be against us? A great question as we leave today to have as individuals and as a church. When applying for a job, when feeling anxious, afraid, ashamed or guilty, will God condemn me because of today's sin? Where do I stand now with God? As J.I. Packer puts it, when God justifies us, he does it with his eyes open. When God justifies us, when he declares us righteous, he does it with his eyes open. Even our sin can't undo God's eternal choice of us. God is for you who are clothed in Christ's righteousness. God is for you. He has always been, literally, and he always will be. And so we say no opposition will stand. In verse 32, we, we God's children, hear what God says. The God who is for us speaks to us. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The Spirit intercedes for us, verse 27, but it gets better that was what we, we learned in recent weeks. But here, when we are praying, we see that we are also helped and aided by the Lord Jesus. As Karl Barth puts it, in our prayers, God hears the voice of his Son. In our prayers, God hears the voice of his Son. The Son intercedes for us, pleads our case, is on our side at, the God, at God's right hand. And if the Son has already taken care of our sin and death, as his resurrection proves, then what on earth is there for us to worry about? Father, Son, Spirit, all committed as one to our eternal well-being. Spurgeon says on this point, Do you believe that your sins are forgiven and that Christ has made a full atonement for them? Then what a joyful Christian you ought to be how you should live above the common trials and troubles of the world. Since sin is forgiven, can it matter what happens to you now? When it is the Lord's work in which we rejoice, we need not be afraid of being too glad. How can we not smile as we get our heads around these things and grow in Christ? We know, we say, and thirdly, we're convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. The God we, by the Spirit, are growing to love, verse 28, is the God who will always love us. Yes, an executioner will kill Paul's body for being a Christian, his flesh. 
But no sword could ever sever Paul from Christ's love, and a love we now know spans eternity. Look at verse 35, and I imagine Paul, the author, who endured a lot of these things because he was a Christian, wrote them with a smile on his face. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Will the Lord deny us or allow our faith to fail even when we're tried and persecuted? No, the Old Testament saints give examples of God's people trusting God even into their early graves. Verse 36, it seems a depressing, an odd fit in this passage. I don't know if you've thought that before. But coming from Psalm 45, coming from a lament psalm, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. For your sake, God's chosen ones persevere and they die for it. God sees them glorified in advance. They're not to be pitied. God protects the faith of his own through temptation, through trials, even to the point of death. And so we think of Joseph or Job or Daniel or Jesus or Peter and the apostles, the Sudanese man who might be starved this very day because he won't renounce Christ. Renounce Christ and you'll get your food rations. Hold on to Christ, miserable Christian, and you can watch your family starve. And trusting God, the family starves. For your sake, we face death all day long. And so too, we at DPC must never resent daily carrying our crosses. We aren't those to be pitied. Verse 37, knowing all these things, even the worst the world can throw at us, God holds on to us. We are more than conquerors. We overwhelmingly conquer, it's the way that can be translated, through him who loves us. David spoke of a verse last week. Jesus warns the world, you will have trouble in the world. The verse here, the conquer word here, comes from what Jesus says next. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome, conquered the world. It's the word Nike used, nike, the word they use, victory, conquering. For we are convinced we're God's conquering children. As the old hymn puts it, No more we doubt thee, glorious Prince of life. Life is naught without thee. Aid us in our strife. Make us more than conquerors through thy deathless love. Bring us safe through Jordan to thy home above. Thine be the glory, risen conquering sun. Endless is the victory. Thou, O death, hast won. No more we doubt thee, because, verse 38, we are convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, no circumstance, no creature, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, friends, if you're a driven person, let Christ's victory arrest and rest you. Drop your goals for a moment and sense the victory already won on your behalf. You've made it. If you're always trying to arrive, why not bask in his arrival for you and live in that arrival? God is for you. If you're a shy, nervous, worried person, you can walk into any room unafraid, knowing you're his child. And knowing you live with the ultimate safety net, 
Your good shepherd ensures no slips, no mistakes, no crashes will see you ultimately harmed. All the what-ifs of anxiety melt away with God's perfect control. In all things, God works for my good, we know. He is for me forever. Your life is not at the whim of random forces, not karma, not fate, not some boss's decision or his actions, her actions, not by the myth of self-determination that it, if, it's up, if it is to be, it's up to me. All of that is godless fiction. God is pruning and chipping away through the pleasant and through the painful to make you more and more like Jesus as he prepares you to join him. If you don't smile about this, isn't it time to start? Your life is a golden strand in God's glorious tapestry. And your opponents, once scary, are toothless tigers. The gates of hell could not prevail against Christ, and the gates of hell, he assures us, will not prevail against his church. You can smile at God's grace at you, to you. You can smile and even enjoy the most difficult people. You can smile fearlessly in circumstances that terrify the godless. You are always innocent and free and eternally secure in God's sight. When I was 10 or 11 years old, my kids' church leaders were preparing me for storms that would come years and years later. As we'd seen with Christ in my vessel, I can smile at the storm. With Christ in my vessel, I can smile at the storm as we go sailing home. Some of us are going through terrible storms. Some of us have been through them. Some of us will go through them. Have we perspective enough to give them a smile? We know, we say, we are convinced. We are far stronger, more secure, loved and protected than we realise. We're not battling it out alone. We will overwhelmingly conquer and glory is inevitable. Last week we heard the sad but pleasing news that Tim Keller had gone to be with Christ. And you can hear the smile in his son, his son Michael's words as Tim shared with him these final words. Tim Keller wrote, I'm thankful for all the people who've prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time God has given me. But I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. Send me home. God's certainty is to be our certainty. We know, we say, we are convinced God is for us. Friends, today I thought it helpful to conclude with a prayer that really is the doorway into this relationship with God. Some of us today may have made this decision many years ago and it's time to refresh it. Others of us may have been around church for a while and today might be the day you take that step. I invite you, please, take that step. Come to Jesus and have life with God. If you've been resisting God or been indifferent towards him, be someone who instead loves God. I take it you're not here by accident. God's hand right now is being offered to you, reached out from heaven, offering you the hand of Jesus. 
And so I think it's going to be displayed if we can organise that. Thanks, Jono. Uh, I'll read it out loud and perhaps you can read it with me. And if this is where you're up to, God will hear your heart and your words. If you'd like to reflect on it more, there are booklets in the back of the church and you can take that home with you. Let's pray this together. Dear God, I know that I am not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I'm sorry and I need your forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me so that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me so that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. And God assures us if that's our heart, we enter his kingdom and he takes care of us forever.